0: In today's episode, we are tackling one of the most harmful societal constructs that has persisted for generations, and that is telling boys and men that having feelings is girly, that they aren't allowed to cry, and that showing emotions is a sign of weakness. Welcome to episode 169 of This Shit Works, a podcast dedicated to all things networking, relationship building, and business development. I'm your host, Julie Brown speaker, author, and networking coach, and today I am joined by author Jim Young, whose book, Expansive Intimacy, How Tough Guys Defeat Burnout, explores the rules of masculinity that force men into a false choice. That choice being either face shame by embracing their inner desires for meaningful connection or invite burnout. By following the harsh rules that require men to shun emotions and emphasize achievements.
1: Welcome to This Shit Works, your weekly no nonsense guide to networking your way to more friends, more adventures, and way more success, with your host, Julie Brown. Here we go.
0: Needing to be a tough guy, or the whole man-up culture, is a set of societal expectations and norms that dictate how men should behave. It encourages men to be stoic, emotionless, and tough in the face of adversity. It's a construct that teaches men to suppress their emotions, especially vulnerability and sadness, And the consequences of this culture has ripple effects, especially when it comes to emotional well-being, meaningful connections, and burnout. Which is why I'm so glad that Jim is here, because he's here to call bullshit on all of that and offer us some tips and perhaps a roadmap on how we can begin to combat these constructs in our own relationships and in our own lives. So Jim, hi. Hello. So excited you're here.
1: Shit. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Julie. I'm excited to talk about how all well, that shit doesn't work and what does.
0: You so many guests now are like when they're on, they they put this shit doesn't work into what they're talking about. And I love that because it's like it's so on brand. Obviously on brand. It's like a podcast. Oh, well, like it's about. such a great name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's dive in. So it's the societal constructs of telling men not to cry, of being tough. You know, deep historical roots here. Millennia. Why has it persisted for so long?
1: I think we, we are still stuck in some of those old patterns. And I think a lot of it's story and narrative. You know, the socialization that we get of what it really means to be a man. And society has shifted so much in the past, call it 100 years or 30 years or 50 years, right? And and I grew up, I'm a, a child of the 70s. And I remember the women's lib movement. I remember as a kid hearing about that. i like, I don't know what that means. But I do now. Like what I saw was that we finally started granting women full permission to participate. And that shifted in a major way. And I think it was a huge threat to men. Because like, well, what's our place now? And what I think has happened is men have just grabbed back on to say like, I got to hold on tight to this. And we see it all over the place. We're seeing it in horrible events across the globe and in everyday society. So I think it's a, a lot of it is like identity struggle.
0: Can you talk a little bit about maybe your personal experiences growing up as a man and how these constructs have affected you throughout your life?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I... I was born a a sensitive kid, sensitive being. And I learned pretty quickly that that wasn't okay because I was a boy. And now I was being raised in a single family, single parent house. My mom was raising me and my sister. The other dominant figure in my life at that time was my grandmother. So I'm raised around three women, right? I'm learning the world a lot through their eyes. And then I'm going out, whether it's, you know, into school or hanging out with my friends or later on in life, getting into college or work and i've got all these influences that on one side told me we appreciate you being this sensitive caring person that's who i was in my family but when i stepped out i i got i got bullied for that i got called names for that and i realized i had to shut that down like that was not an okay way for me to be I was not going to get ahead with my peers in athletics, in school, at work, if I showed up as this sensitive guy. So I had to put on all this tough gear. Now, I don't want to suggest that, you know, we shouldn't be as men tough and take on hard things. Like that's part of what's great about guys, right? And I have that, those qualities, but I also have the other qualities of being a caring person, having emotions. And to me, it's about having that balance that I can bring. And you know, it's taken me a long time to feel like it's okay to say like, yeah, that part of me, he's allowed in too.
0: I think this is so interesting because you said you were so for a lot of my childhood, my mom was a single mom. I had, so I had my mom and I had my older sister and then I had my mom's mom. A mm-hmm. so very similar, same. our kind of family was the same as yours. And I had the exact opposite experience where i grew up in a family that it was you almost had to act like a man because there were no men in the family and it was it was very difficult it was you didn't show emotion you didn't cry crying was for babies i'll give you something to cry about like there was absolutely no tolerance for being a girl Mm -hmm. I think it's weird. I think with the other, my other sister, there was for some reason, but when it came to me, Mm -hmm. there was no tolerance for it. And so I learned to be emotionally shut down. Like I still don't find it easy to show emotion, to talk about emotion, to cry. Like, I think the most I ever cried was when my dog died and I was 46 years old and it was the most I'd ever cried in my life. Mm -hmm. And so it's funny, I, you would think being raised predominantly by women, I would have had a more emotional upbringing and it was, it was devoid of emotion.
1: It's not surprising to me. I mean, you're born in a, you know, a female body and you're raised in a female family, largely in a male dominated society that says like the way to get ahead is to not show any weakness. Right. And it's like, it's silly, right? Like we all go through our dog dies or. We don't get the promotion that we want, or we get dumped. Like there's all this stuff that happens to us in our lives that brings up emotion. Like it's just natural. And yet so many of us, whether we're men or women or whatever, we get the message that says, you know, just brush that off. Yeah. Like just keep going. And it's like, that, that doesn't give us much room to deal with what's actually going on inside of us. And we're holding it in and it's causing all kinds of stress and tons of negative consequences long-term when we do that.
0: I heard you once say, or I read that you said that you had a six-hour improv class that changed your life. And I'm so curious as to what possibly happened in that improv class that could have changed your life.
1: I think the bottom line is that I got permission to stop pretending, right? Which doesn't make a lot of sense, right? I was going into a class where I was just pretending, mm-hmm. you know, making shit up. <laughs> but I didn't have to pretend I was somebody. I didn't have to go in there with all these accomplishments and this status of who I was and what I could do. I was just in there to be creative and have fun and connect with people. And that that first uh, workshop I went to six hours one day, like eight years ago, I just walked into this place where I felt like it didn't matter what I was, who I was, how I was like, I was just accepted. I belonged there and I could be how I wanted to be. And over the years I've been practicing improv since then, I've got a show on Saturday and, and I've learned so much about how I can just show up and explore emotions, explore relationships, and it's literally liberating. Like I've, I've felt the weight come off of my shoulders of like trying to show up a certain way mm-hmm. for people. And it's a little bit funny because it's like in improv, it's like this constructed thing where I'm going to show up with this persona that I put on, but somehow it frees me up in my real life.
0: Yeah, it's so, I. I have a couple of questions to ask built off of that. I think my first question is how do we start being comfortable showing emotion, especially when we're not sure how other people will react to our emotions? Because there's the vulnerability of showing it and then also not knowing how people will react. And like, I I had a really interesting learning experience. Um, actually, so I don't have children. I have the dogs. And so all the neighborhood kids, like my dogs were there. My kids that they played with, like, they would come over and play with my dogs. And so when my dog passed away, the kids in the neighborhood took it really hard. Yeah. And I was over the neighbor's house having dinner or something. And my neighbor's son started crying because he missed my dog. And I, I'm embarrassed to say it now because in it, because it, I've learned this. like, And I said to him, I said, oh, baby, don't cry. It's okay. okay. And I told my husband later when I went home, I said, oh, so I don't want to say his name because I don't have permission, but I was like, so-and-so was crying because he misses Royce. And he goes, that's good. That's good that he was crying, that he was showing emotion. And I was like, not the reaction I had. And I felt terrible that I didn't give him the space to cry yeah. because I couldn't because I was still emotionally un- unavailable from it.
1: Yeah. That makes me think of how I got into improv in the first place, which was my kids my kids were doing improv classes and they were having so much fun with it. And I, that's what inspired me. But that connection to that second part is that I think one of the safe places or one of the ways that I got emotions, emotional expression modeled for me was my kids. I've got three kids. They're now 20, 18, and 15. And back then, you know, or as they were growing up, I got to see them just be how they were, right? And kind of unfiltered and realize like, why don't I have that kind of joy? Or how come I haven't cried in 10 years? Right? Right. Like I went through a period of time where I didn't cry for like 10, 15 years. Like I held so much shit in. And so I, I think in terms of how to start expressing that, like, so if there's a model to me, it's, look for examples of like how people are doing it in a way that feels interesting to you, attractive yeah. to you, like, oh, wow. Like, look, they seem like they're able to express what's going on. Yeah. And then I like to think of Mr. Rogers. Like Mr. Rogers <laughs> is one of my heroes. Um, loved him when I was a kid. And he has this expression of look for the helpers. Yeah. Like, who are the safe people in your life that you can just be who you are? who aren't going to judge yeah. you. They're just going to be there to help out whatever's going on and start. Like I, I always talk about like, start small, like share a little bit, reveal a little bit to test the waters with somebody. Like, is it safe for me to tell you that I'm not sure how I'm feeling right now, Yeah, but something's going on. And then yes. And then, yeah, maybe, it, I, I think I feel a little sad. Yeah, Right. And mean. like, just start to, to build that, that trust with somebody
0: you know, I think obviously societally, this is a problem. We need to have Mm. more open dialogue around this. And there is, there's a billboard on a road. So I belong to a farm share in Rhode Island. And when I, because I live in Rhode Island on the weekends in the summer, I drive to the farm share and there's this one roadside um, billboard. And it's, it's a picture of a, like, you don't see his head. You just see his, like, neck and his torso. And it's a guy with a suit on, but his shirt's unbuttoned. And you can see some sort of, like, chest hair is, like, poking out. Uh-huh. And then the text on the um, billboard is, come in and get some things off your big hairy chest. <laughs> and it is a, it's a billboard for, a, you know, a therapist's office. And I just, I I remember seeing it and being like, this is absolutely brilliant because... I mean, it's crucial. It's crucial for society to challenge and change the stereotype that men don't talk about it, that it's a stiff upper lip. You have to be stoic. You can not have feelings. And I just would wish we would see more of that. Like, how do we get more of that?
1: I love that example because it, it pokes fun at it a little bit, right? Yeah. It brings some levity into something that feels like it's got a ton of gravity. It's like, oh my God, therapy, it's like, oh wait, we we can kind of make, make a little bit of fun of it. Mm-hmm. I think to me, that's where like having comedy in my life and I loved comedy when I was a kid. And then I realized like, oh, that's not gonna get me anywhere. I gotta be serious and like get a real job and all that bullshit. And then eventually it became a part of my life and I bring it into my life wherever I can because I realize like the work that I do and I coach guys, I coach organizations oftentimes I'm dealing with burnout and if I just go in totally serious and heavy like it's too much right and it's like let's let's recognize let's laugh at it a little bit when we can and you know get serious when we need to but come on we go around once as far as I know like how do we want to do it right do we want to be serious about the shit that's bothering us and do we want to actually have fun as much as we possibly can which is one of my core values in life is to create as much fun as possible.
0: So when did you when did you know that this was what you wanted to do? You wanted to help people with this this stereotype these intimacy issues that are causing it's kind of like I think about as a runner if you're something in your foot hurts it, it hurts it's probably coming from your hip. <laughs> so a lot of the things that are hurting us They are the effects of something else happening. So how did you decide, this is what I want to dive into? I want to help people uncover. I have a pain here, but it's actually coming from here.
1: First, um, I had to crawl out of the burnout crater myself because I had just like crashed and burned by taking so much on and holding so much in for decades. And then once I got out of that and I said, okay, I got to go reinvent myself. It took me a few years to recognize that like, oh, what I actually want to do is help other guys avoid that same fate, or at least, you know, if they didn't avoid it, help them find a faster way out of it. And that was only a few years ago that I kind of recognized that my work was like the best, some of the best work that I could do is what I think a lot of people refer to as the wounded healer work. It like, I know what that's like. I know it's objectively terrible. And so What's the best thing I could do is I could take the lessons that I learned of like, what, what got me into that place? And then how did I get out? So that if, you know, if my trajectory was like this steep dive, well, how can I flatten that out for somebody, make it a bit easier? And it's super rewarding to me because I think like, if we look at it on the grand scale, all the things that are going on in the world come from stress. They come from violent reactions. If I can make a small dent in that, if I can help one person even avoid some of those lash out reactions or whatever, because they're in so much stress, I've done a great job for myself. And if I can do that with more people, even better.
0: How do you, I'm, I'm very curious to know how you begin that conversation with somebody. Somebody comes to you and they're like, I'm burned out. I'm stressed out. I can't do anything I do. You know, they're probably not coming to you saying I'm emotionally unavailable and I haven't cried in 15 years. Like, yeah, so what sure. is the pulling back of the onion that you do on that? Because I'm assuming you have to do it with a little bit of ease and be gentle with people.
1: Yeah. Having done it for a bunch of years now and worked with dozens of guys who've been in those shoes, I've learned a lot of the nuance there. And there's, you know, I wish that there was a formula that I could just lay down because honestly, I would just like write it out a LinkedIn post that I would put up every day and be like, do these five things and you'll be good. It's just not, it's like, we're too complicated as people. We have too much history and baggage and beliefs and all that. So I try to approach everybody with where they are and just and just confirm, like validate, like, yeah. Like I get it. I, one of the reasons I don't think I'd ever become a therapist, even though my work tends to be like therapeutic for people, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to do all that schoolwork uh but i also know that for therapists one of the cardinal rules is you don't really share any of your story and i think for men because we're so shut down and we don't share with each other our inner realities that as a coach i get to do that and so oftentimes the way that i've found that helps guys say like okay i'm going to i'm going to get real i'm going to be honest here is to recognize what they're saying and then say yeah I hear you. Mm -hmm. I had something just like that. Here's what it looked like for me. I put out a podcast about it. I've got a book about it. Like I'm an open book, quite literally, so that guys can see, all right, well, I'm not alone in this. And I I write in the book a lot about shame as a factor in how Mm -hmm. men get into burnout and stay in burnout. And I think that's a huge thing to acknowledge. And so I'm just like, I'm up front, like, I have shame. It helped me get into burnout. It kept me in burnout and I had to bust through it to get out.
0: Um, When I was thinking about this podcast, this interview, our our conversation together, I, for some reason, and I don't know why, my mind went to Fight Club and (laughs) probably not the parts of Fight Club you think. I actually went to the parts of Fight Club where Ed Norton's character goes to groups, like support groups, because he can't sleep. And when he goes to support groups, when he is there in in that environment, then he can go home and he doesn't have insomnia and he sleeps. Mm -hmm, And it made me think about another statistic that I had heard, which is a startling statistic that the average adult male only has one friend. And crushing. Exactly. And I'm and I'm thinking like how how much better maybe our lives would be if not. I'm not saying we have to have more friends. I know it's friendship is a process, but are there groups for men like are there support groups that are like this shit is hard like we can at least get in a room together and say this shit is hard
1: i'm gonna start a men's support group that's called this shit is hard because <laughs> yes,
0: it is
1: uh it's so funny you ask that question because like literally today the day we were recording this i dropped an episode on my podcast that is all about how men's groups changed the trajectory of my life starting 12 years ago. And I've been involved in multiple of them over the years as a participant, also as a facilitator. Sitting in a circle with other men is millennia old as well. Like we've been doing it since time began. And it's a way for men to connect in ways that modern society has told them like, no, 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 you go it alone. you're a rugged individual. You don't need any help you just go do it and you prove to everybody that you can do it better than the rest of them. Like that's a disaster waiting to happen.
0: Right. I do think about, I, I, when I think about our relationships, I do think a lot about like what were the constructs when we were evolving. And so I think you said like in a circle around fire, you stayed together for, for protection and for community. And So many of our basic needs, I think, come from that evolutionary process. But our life is built in a way that pulls us away from those things that allowed us to evolve. Mm -hmm. I just think it's so I just think it's so interesting. And, you know, I have two nephews and. I grew up in a family of women, like i it was like I mentioned it was it 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 goes beyond just it was my mom and my nana. my nana was one of five girls, my mom was one of two girls, I was one of three girls, my older yeah. sister had a daughter, like there were no boys wow and when when my sister had her first son, she has two sons, when my sister had her first son, um you know ten years ago, I just remember thinking like well, this kid's probably going to be an asshole because he's going to be spoiled because he's the first son in, you know, on the tree since the eighteen hundred. But then I also thought, like, how difficult it must be to raise boys in today's society.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have three kids, and my first kid um, was born female, now identifies as non-binary. Um, and then I had a son and then I had a daughter and it was like, I was so comfortable having a daughter first. I was so at ease with that. And then having a son, I was like, I was unnerved by it because like, I don't really know how to raise a boy into manhood. Cause I'm still working on that myself. Yeah, And my dad was not really part of my life growing up we have a good relationship but he's just never been connected. I I didn't see him much as a kid. I didn't have a lot of strong male role models. I actually never had what I would consider to be a real male friendship, like a real intimate male friendship, healthy one until I was like 42. It was the first time that I had a conversation with another guy, a friendship with another guy where I could be my real self. I could tell him what was going on in my life without pretending that everything was fine. Yeah. and the power of that for me it just i was like oh my god like life got so much easier once i started to be able to relate to other men because i can relate to women all day long and i have my improv troupe is me and five women right it's a it's a fucking blast and you don't get us you just can't you, you know you just as I can't understand what a woman's experience is actually in the world, despite knowing so many of them really well, I need other guys who get what it's like to go through the world as a man. And I need to be able to talk with them. And I do that now regularly with a bunch of different guys. And I'm glad I'm not part of that statistic of, I only have one male friend.
0: Yeah. Um, It breaks my heart, honestly. I mean, there's a lot of statistics about adult friendship and how, the older we get, the less friendships we have and not it affects that. women
1: too. Yeah. Yep.
0: Yeah, yep. It affects women too. And that the average adult hasn't made a new friend in more than five years. And it it blows me away. It blows me away and it and it breaks my heart on multiple levels. I want you said something about doing a podcast about the men's group that you joined. And did I hear you correct that you're creating a men's group, or did I just wish that into existence because you're gonna do it now that I said it? <laughs>
1: uh, you know, it's something that I've Uh, bandied about for a while and i was getting ready to start one this fall and then i had another work project come up that's taken up a lot of my time it's a true passion for me of leading those right now i'm a member of one that i co-created and we actually don't have a leader where we all lead it there's about 10 of us Mm -hmm. um but i'd love like just to drop some resources in like if anybody wants to be in a men's group and thinks that i'd be a great person to to lead it I, i am um let me know, like I, I have a deep hunger to do that, but uh, there's a bunch of resources out there. So anybody who's listening, like the Mankind Project is one that a lot of people know about. There's another big organization called Everyman. It's E-V-R-Y-M-A-N. Um, in the business realm, if you think about it more from less like the personal side, groups like Vistage or YPO, masterminds or, or uh, executive panels, whatever they call them, those groups often end up being a lot more like a, a men's circle because a lot of them are men and the vulnerability that's allowed in those spaces. I know from experience of talking to people who've been in those is super healing for them. Um, and then there are people like me who, you know, are private coaches who run their own groups and there's a bunch of us out there. Um, get in touch with me if you want to find, I can refer you to some people or if you want to talk to me about doing one in, in the way that I do it, you know, I'm interested in that too.
0: I have like one final question, um, and I don't exactly know how to phrase it. In the past few years, there's been a lot of emphasis on DEI. There's been a lot of emphasis on making sure that women can excel in the workplace and get paid their fair share, get paid what, it, what men get paid. And I've heard and, and I work in a male dominated industry. I work in architecture and construction for 17 years, and now the speaking industry is also a male dominated industry. And I have had some people in my network say to me, "Well, I can't get work right now, or it's really hard to be a white male, or that now everything's stacked against me." And I'd love to know just how to react to that because they, because there's something there. There's there's a dichotomy here of you have had it so good for so long on a lot of different fronts. But yes, you also were dealing with these constructs that were really difficult, but it doesn't make it okay to be mad that I'm getting a fair share now at, at you know, what should have been a fair share a long time ago. And right. I'd love to know your thoughts behind that, because I think there are a lot of white males right now who are feeling a huge resentment against what's happening in the corporate world.
1: Yeah, I get it. I actually, one of my long-running projects is I partner up with an organization as a facilitator doing gender equity programs for corporate leaders. And most of them are men. It's talking about how do we balance those scales. And there really is a lot of fear, you know, as layoffs are happening and as the job market is kind of in this crazy state. I think it gets really tricky because we're talking about a huge systemic issue that, none of us personally created. And yet the reality is white men have benefited like period end of story. Like you can't deny the statistics like on the fortune 500 list of CEOs, 41 of them are women. 60 of them are named John James or Robert or something like we have literally three men's names that make up more than the total of women CEOs. Yeah, course,
0: there's more CEO named David David than there are female CEOs.
1: Right. Yeah. So like there's there's tons of evidence. And at the personal level when you get down to that guy who's like I can't find an opportunity, it's like all right, well now I got to break out my empathy. Cuz nobody wants anybody to be in that position where they're feeling like they're struggling or threatened. And when people are struggling or threatened, they don't they're certainly not at their best. Yeah. So how do we find ways to support that person and Help them see that this isn't against you personally. It's how the system is rebalancing itself. And that's that's I, I don't have a perfect answer for that. That's a really, really tough question. But I don't think we talk. have to be in dialogue and start to say, yeah, I see you. And I think the other piece of it is like there's a uh, I think it's Simon Sinek, is the author who's got a book called The Infinite Game.
0: Yes, that is exactly right.
1: Right. And so there's this finite mentality of, well, it's a zero sum game. She got the job. I didn't. The opportunities are going to people that aren't me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, what are the other opportunities? When I was in the corporate world, I only saw this much. I had my head down. And when I finally busted out of that and I picked my head up and I looked at like, what's actually going on in the world? What are the opportunities that are really out there? And what do I want? That's not about me climbing a ladder and getting status to be respected or feel like I've achieved something external, mm-hmm. I started to realize like, oh, there's a lot of things that I could do and I don't have to get the highest paycheck. I don't have to have the best title on my social media post, job title. Mm-hmm. I like, think breaking out of like, what does success look like for men in this culture? And I know men who have made a shift to say, you know what? I actually want to be the person who is at home with the kids. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's, I think there's a lot of different ways that men can get fulfilled that are not about the standard path that's been given to them, the playbook that says this is how to be a man. I think if we break out of that playbook, some of those dynamics of like who gets the opportunities, I think they start to become a bit easier.
0: Yeah. I do. I have two friends who they have two kids, one with special needs. Mm -hmm. And so, when they looked at their careers and the trajectory of their careers, he said, I'm going to stay home and take care of the kids. And she is the breadwinner. And I think that's such a, that's so refreshing to see instead of making it like the, the usual familial roles. So I
1: think that's a real tough guy move. Yeah. Because yeah. like, I'm willing to say, like, yeah, I love my kids so much. I'm going to stay home with them. And my wife yes. is in a better position to be the provider in our family. Financially, I'm providing in a different way. Exactly. And I don't care what you say.
0: Exactly. Great. But I love my
1: family more.
0: Great way to end it, Jim. I love <laughs> that. I love that. Okay. So if people want to connect with you, they can go to the centered, thecenteredcoach.com, correct?
1: That's right. That's the best place to find anything. Okay,
0: And you are also on LinkedIn, which I would say everybody should go on LinkedIn because you post a lot of great information on LinkedIn yeah, um, thanks. as
1: well. Yeah, and if you search the Centered Coach on LinkedIn, it'll be easier to find me than to look for Jim Young because there's a lot of us.
0: Yeah, like that name Julie Brown, but there's yeah, only exactly. one big one.
1: There's only one. <laughs> <about Julie Brown. laughs> we know that.
0: Um, This was so great. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Julie.
0: It can be easy to think that men have it easy. And in a lot of ways, yes, they do have it easier than women. But just because the societal expectations on and constructs for them are different, it doesn't mean that they have it easier in every single way. I'd like to encourage anyone listening, especially men and maybe even myself, to recognize that showing vulnerability and seeking help is a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness. It may take time. And effort and practice, and maybe even a coach like Jim to help. But wouldn't it be freeing to break free from the constraints of traditional masculinity and start embracing our emotions without the fear of judgment? Or maybe it's not even the fear of judgment, it's the ability to not give a fuck if someone judges you for it because you know it's better for you and your overall health and well being than the alternative. I like how Jim gave us the permission to start small. Start small by saying simply to someone, I'm struggling today, or today is hard, or this thing I'm dealing with is a lot. Even if it's in slow drips to start getting that shit out of your mind and out of your body. Like that billboard said, start getting that shit off your big hairy chest. Okay, now on to the drink of the week, which, for fuck's sake, I don't know why, but I didn't expect to find so many websites dedicated to lists like this. "Quote: Manly cocktails to order at the bar. How to look manly at the bar. What is the most manliest cocktail?" I mean, it's fucking ridiculous. I actually found an article describing what manly cocktails are and are not. Here's what it said, in case you're interested. This is direct quote. What makes a cocktail manly? A manly cocktail shouldn't be overly sweet. A manly cocktail never employs a straw. A manly drink is never blue, green, pink or purple. But most of all, a manly cocktail hits the palate sharply with either potent alcohol, strong sourness, powerful bitterness or a combination of the three. It challenges the taste buds and burns the throat. That's why they are rarely loved by first-time drinkers. Well, for fuck's sake, give me a break. This particular article listed the seven manliest cocktails as, and these are ones I drink, like, a lot. Like, this is ridiculous. I guess, I I guess I'm fucking manly. Here we go. Dirty martini, old-fashioned, classic Manhattan, rusty nail, sidecar, straight absinthe, and a drink called The Godfather, which I had never had before. Well, I'm not going to do any of those drinks. I've already highlighted a few of those, but I'm not going to do any one of those because, like, it's this article is fucking ridiculous. I was, however, intrigued by a cocktail that I found in none other than Garden and Gun magazine. I know. I had never heard of it either. But the cocktail is called the Third Man Cocktail. The third man was inspired by the 1949 noir film of the same name written by Graham Greene and starring Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles. I just kind of liked that the magazine was called Garden and Gun. Like, would think that those are two male and feminine constructs and, like, that's what the name of the magazine was. So that's what drew me to this cocktail. All right, anyways, third man cocktail. Here's what you're going to need. They call for Bellmead bourbon. I've never had Bellmead bourbon. I don't know how it tastes. So I'm going to say just an ounce and a half of bourbon, one ounce of grapefruit, three-fourths ounce of lemon juice, three-fourths ounce of Campari, and a half ounce of simple syrup. Shake all ingredients with ice until chilled. Strain over fresh ice in a rocks glass and then garnish with a grapefruit twist. All right, friends, that's all for this week. If you like what you heard today, please leave a review and subscribe to the podcast. Also, please remember to share the podcast to help it reach a larger audience. If you want more Julie Brown, you can find my book, This Shit Works, on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. You can find me on LinkedIn at Julie Brown BD. Just let me know where you found me when you reach out. I'm Julie Brown underscore BD on Instagram. Or as always, just pop on over to my website, JulieBrownBD.com, for lots more information. Until next week, cheers.
1: Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a tip. And remember, you can unapologetically be who you authentically are and still be wildly successful. That's a fact. See you next week on This Shit Works.